Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Good morning. Today is the day. Today is the day the Lord has made. We are rejoicing. We are glad in it. It is Monday, the 21st of October, 2019. Welcome to Mornings with Carmen. So in that, in the little song that we play every single day at the start of, uh, start of the hour, it, you know, it, it acknowledges that we are just anyone who God says we are. Like we are who God says we are. And so I want you to be reminded today that you are who God says you are. You are not, you are not necessarily who you think you are. And you are not necessarily uh, who others think you are or accuse you of being. You are, in fact, who God says you are. I want you to consider that amazing truth for just a moment. You are who God says you are. Um, That means you are beloved. I mean, first and foremost, let's just start the list right there. You are beloved. Created in his image on purpose and for a purpose, you are beloved. You are so beloved of God that he sent his only son, the second co-equal uh, member of the Trinity, the, the uh, fully God, the one we know as Jesus in the flesh to redeem you and yes, me and everything else. But you, I mean, it's not inconsequential that God sent Christ to save you. And so when you... uh when you consider who you are today and you consider who the world thinks you are and you consider who, you know, others accuse you of being, uh, let me just ask you, who do you think you are? Like sometimes that's stated <laughs> in a relatively accusatory manner. Like, who do you think you are? Right. I, I don't know about you. I, I have actually heard that accusation in my life a time or two. Um, so much of our culture and relational angst is captured in that question, who do you think you are? So who does he think he is or who does she think she is? I mean, I, you have heard it. You may have said it. So let's get right down to it. Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are to pray for me in my distress? Who do you think you are to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness in this current chaos? Who do you think you are to speak peace into my tirade about the failures of everyone else? Who do you think you are to bring redemption to bear in this relationship? Who do you think you are? to see the eternal in the midst of the everyday and point, point it out to others? Who do you think you are to ascertain and apply the mind of Christ to the matters of the day? Who do you think you are to expect God to be God, to show up and to show off and to bring the gospel to bear right here and right now, on earth as in heaven, today? Who do you think you are? And if you don't think you're something special, you're wrong because you are something special created uniquely in the image of God on purpose and for a purpose. And if you think otherwise, you're wrong about yourself. And if you think otherwise about anyone else, you're wrong about them too. There's lots of confrontations between Jesus and the Pharisees where essentially their questions come down to this. Who does he think he is? Well, pause and consider that today. Who does Jesus think he is? (laughs) And in light of who Jesus is, who do you think you are? 
Who do you think you are? I think we'll just settle right there for just a moment. When we come back, Brandon Showalter will be here. He and I are going to begin surveying the headline news of the day. Uh, And let me just go ahead and warn you in advance. I'm going to be surveying the headline news of the day, thinking that I uh, am able, by God's grace and through the word of God, to apprehend the mind of Christ on the matters of the day and then to apply it. All right, that's where we're headed. Returning now is Brandon Showalter from the Christian Post. You can follow him on Twitter at Brandon M. Show. Hey, welcome back, man. Good morning, Carmen. Good morning. All right, so you and I have uh, a number of headlines that I would like to uh, to cover today. And I'd like to start with um, something that I found on ChristianPost.com about bioethics and bioethics uh, folks, bioethicists, ignoring ethics. And can you talk with us a little bit about that? Yes, this is a fascinating panel that I attended at the Heritage Foundation where I had three prominent you know, bioethics people, one of a professor at Catholic University, one uh, bioethicist who has an organization out in California who advocates for women who've been harmed in surrogacy arrangements, and another from the Charlotte Lozier Institution, which is a pro-life um, organization. And one of the things that they um, – all really emphasizes how much um, mass media coverage of a lot of sort of cutting edge science issues ignores the ethics of how uh, scientific discoveries often happen. Uh, And that's such a huge thing because it's often, it's just so hidden um, when people talk about, you know, cloning or surrogacy or, you know, the use of embryonic stem cells or experimentation on humanized mice. Like there's, there's just, People don't the the manner in which scientists doing a lot of this research, how the things, how this was done, what materials were used, it's just hidden from the public, and so the public largely feels, oh well, scientists are doing all this cool, cool stuff and scientific advancement, and you know how how neat is that? And you have to pull back the proverbial curtain and take a look and say, wait a minute, how was this done? Um, and they all just emphasize that that's that's a really big thing. Well, and one of the things that leapt out at me, Brandon, in this piece, and again, you guys can find what we're talking about at ChristianPost.com, um, is that human beings are referred to in many cases as material. Like, right? right. There's this there's this material, this genetic material that they're using to figure out how to how to create, let's say, uh, a child using. Um, you know, m- mixing up uh, a child's genetic code, right? Um, gene editing, all of these things, humanized right. mice. Uh, uh, it requires material, and when you, we use that, when we begin to think of the human body and the human person as something that is only material. Now, it's it's also not okay for us to disregard the body altogether and not consider its material nature, like the incarnation really reminds us that matter matters. But what we're talking about here is the human body degraded to something that is literally just like a natural resource. That's right. And when we, when we forget the importance of ethics, and we really forget what it means to be human. And it's, you know, the pursuit of 
you know, scientific advancement or innovation as an end in itself. If, if we don't consider, you know, the ethics and we just sort of treat you know, human beings as just means to an end or, you know, mere materials, some real horrors result. And, you know, we, we end up really <laughs> in a very precarious territory and there's some harms that result. I mean, it's, it's not an issue. Um, I, whenever I talk about surrogacy with people, I really, I, people think, oh, this is great. You know, we're just helping people have a baby. And it's like, you know what actually surrogates go through when mm. they are forced to, you know, give birth, they, they start a pregnancy that is high risk because a, a woman's body is not meant to carry another woman's baby. That's just not how God's made us. You know, Kim Kardashian and Kanye, the news is all splashy and it's covering how great, you know, they've got a new baby coming. This is just so wonderful. And Kim Kardashian goes on the air and talks about how easy it is. It's like, well, for easy for you. But this surrogate probably had a lot of health complications, and she certainly probably got, you know, some mental issues because after you get, I mean, these surrogates are forced to just have this baby torn away from them, and then they're they're dealing with all of this trauma, and maybe they're paid, but oftentimes it's not very much, all things considered, and so the media never really covers that very much at all um, because well, it's just the, sort of painted as this good thing. Right. And it gets into another conversation that you and I have touched on before, and that is just the commodification of children, as if children right. are just a commodity. And we ought to be and able to... And a woman, to... and of women, sure, and of their bodies. Sure. Right. And we ought to be able to get one when we want it, and only when we right. want it, and only the variety that we want in the, you know, in the particular uh, mix. It's, it is it is important to have these conversations, because we don't often pause and think about the ethics behind the headlines. And so I appreciate I appreciate this particular piece um, helping us do that. All right, Brandon, let's take uh, let's take a brief break. We're going to do another conversation about the ethics behind the headlines of something. Uh, And this is actually, uh, you know, this this systemic push to normalize the sex trade is a little bit crazy to me. Um, But you have actually uh, helped us uh, understand a little bit more about how feminists who we aren't necessarily always aligned with in everything that we think they're actually helping on this front. Uh, talking about how uh, how damaging this is. So that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. I'm talking with Brandon Showalter from the Christian Post. We'll be right back. All right, whoever it is out there who thinks I'm speaking wrath this morning, um, I I uh, huh, yeah, I don't know, I uh. Let me check that out. Um, Paul and Brandon, am I speaking wrath this morning? Have you heard me being wrathful? I'm just checking. I don't think think you're being wrathful. Nope. All right. I'm just checking because sometimes, you know, maybe I am misunderstanding myself. Uh, So for the the person out there who is hearing wrath this morning, um, that's not me. Okay. Um, All right. Brandon, we have a feminist who is speaking out against normalizing the sex trade. Now, first of all, normalizing the sex trade among feminists, if we're talking about uh, adult women entering into um, what what some consider, like, right, a trade, um, which I obviously have issues with because that is not what I think sex is created for uh, or the context in which I think sex is supposed to be lived out. However, if we're talking about adults, I, I understand, I do understand that people have a different view of this than I do. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about kids. We are talking about the normalization of the prostitution of minors. 
this is this is actually frankly kind of shocking. Yeah, there there it's hard to believe, but there is a concerted push to normalize not only adult prostitution here in Washington D.C. There's a big debate this week about you know decriminalizing it, not just the sale but the purchase of it, which would essentially legalize pimping and you know brothels and all that. But yes, the there is a very insidious push um, amongst certain sort of progressive organizations. And this feminist you speak of is Natasha Charter, who's actually a friend of mine. Uh, she chairs the Women's Liberation Front, and she spoke about how she was um, used to work on the left uh, in on the on the in a particular social justice organization that she found out that they were engaged in support of and were using very slippery, obfuscating language to promote youth in the sex trade. Uh, and of course, people can't, they don't come right out and say, yeah, I support minors as prostitutes. You can't, no one would, you know, just outright say that. But it's, you start you start using this slippery language and you realize what's really being advocated. Um, and when she objected to this, she was fired. Uh, youth sex work is the, the euphemism that's being bandied about here. Um, it's it's pretty horrific when you when you consider it because you know, our law recognizes that if you're a minor and you're in, found in prostitution, they they treat you as a victim of trafficking. They treat you as a victim of a crime. But this this push that of which she spoke about is is this effort to start to normalize it and not treat them as criminals that, you know, just allow, allow these people to be in it because you're actually, it's a danger to the minor to stigmatize them like this. I mean, it's just insane. Mm. All right. So again, you guys can find that at christianpost.com. I want to talk about what's going on in Tampa, Florida. Um, Okay. So we have heard across the country about efforts to ban counseling particularly of minors who have uh, what we will describe as unwanted same-sex attraction or gender confusion. And um, and in some cities and in some uh, places, those ordinances for banning that counseling have been upheld. That's not what happened here uh, in, in Tampa. That's right. The ban was struck down by a federal judge and um, it's, you're right that in other places that these bans seem to have gone into effect and, there's no there's no issue, but around the country, that's there is some turnaround because uh, this ban, as you say, in Tampa was struck down because in a recent ruling of, of last last year, actually, in the NIFLA opinion, which is a, the Supreme Court case that was about uh, pregnancy centers in California, which was a five four decision in their favor. Uh, Justice Thomas, who was writing for the majority, said that just because speech is Pro, you know, protected or speech of a, of a counselor, it, it's still free speech. Um, and so, just as the pro-life centers were not going to advertise or promote or refer for abortion as was required by state law, he cited two cases that was involved that were about counselors who were, you know, you know, counseling, you know, individuals with unwanted same-sex attraction or gender confusion, and he he linked that with that that decision, and so. There's now Supreme Court precedent saying that no, if someone comes to wants counseling for, you know, unwanted uh, feelings or desires, they are allowed to speak that way. And so New York City overturned its is, is moving to scrap its ban. And so there is there's a move I think in the right direction because 
the state should not have sway inside of a therapy room and try to steer conversations of that intimate nature with clients who come to counselors wanting help. Which I think is where this conversation has to start. I mean, let's just pause for yeah. a moment and ask ourselves why why we would go seek the counsel of another for anything. For and anything. for those of us right. who are Christians, for those of us who are Christians, right, the first counsel we're going to seek is the counsel of God. And God provides to us the Holy Spirit as a counselor. Um, and so we are going to seek to align our lives, our thinking, um, our desires, our relationships, everything. We're going to seek to align those with the counsel of God in the full counsel of Scripture, um, which he helps us understand by the counsel of the Holy Spirit, who is the counselor. Like, right? Like, this is the first counseling level for Christians. Um, and then we do go to others who help us, uh, who help us do that. Like, if I'm, if I know that my life is disoriented and I need help getting it back into alignment with the will of God, I am going to seek the counsel of other Christians to help me do that. And I and they ought to be free to speak the truth to me, um, regardless of whether or not they have a professional title uh, or a professional job. And I think that that is what Justice Thomas was seeking to point out, that just because these people are professionals doesn't mean they're not allowed to speak. Exactly right. Uh, and I think it was it really was you can't I cannot underscore enough how important that opinion is, because, I mean, really, it's it, it essentially these 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 counseling bans are essentially the state uh, telling a, you know, a counselor or a therapist what they can and cannot say. Uh, it's I mean, it's such a heavy handed push, I think. Um, and I mean, particularly when a client comes in there wanting to talk about something mm-hmm. they, you know, to talk about, th- to talk about these kind of really deep matters of the soul. I mean, what business does the state have? And we have separation of church and state too, I would just add. And if people have their faith and they want to bring that to bear on, you know, their lives, however they want to lead their lives, they should be free to talk about those kinds of things. Um, obviously if there's abuse or something going on in, I mean, that, that should be that should be restrained. But, you know, therapists and counselors already have a code of ethics by which they have to abide. And um, and so, I mean, I, I think this is just my opinion. This is just a step in the right direction to see this, these bans overturned, um, particularly now because most of these uh, most of these bans are not just about, you know, unwanted same sex attraction, but gender confusion as well. And that's just a huge thing taking off now. As we've discussed many times on this program, Carmen, with all of the, you know, the gender clinics and the puberty blockers and all of the, you know, hormones that are now being given to youth that are distressed. And I mean, you find that in places where they want to try and ban this kind of counseling where you're helping, you know, young men and women come to accept their bodies as they are, that's not allowed. But somehow you're allowed to help them become the opposite sex if they want. I mean, it's just insane. It is uh, upside down and inside out, and so we uh, need to be people who keep our feet, keep our wits about us, bring the mind of Christ to bear on the matters of the day. Thank you for helping us do that. Thank you for all that you do at the Christian Post. You guys can find Brandon uh, at ChristianPost.com. One of the articles we didn't get to today that is just uh, heartbreaking is a story out of Syria where um, a woman who uh, is Kurdish, also a politician, was working to unite Christians, Arabs, and Kurds. She was uh, summarily executed during Turkey's um, essential invasion of northeastern Syria last week. And so we just want to be mindful that uh, people who are on the front lines um, mm, become martyrs in these in these conflicts. Hey, Brandon, thank you so much again today for being with us. Thank you, Carmen. 
We'll look forward to talking with you again. we got to take a quick Absolutely. break. Uh, when we come back, Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College. there paul burrow finding me some who do you think you are music nicely done nicely done in case you guys missed the uh, little monologue at the top of the hour uh my provocative question for this morning is who do you think you are um maybe we uh, need a reminder of uh renee descartes here 17th century um philosopher i think that a lot of people uh, only know descartes for having uh, coined the phrase i think therefore i am and much of what Descartes uh, said and taught is actually preserved in, like, mathematics, like super math genius dude. But, but in terms of being kind of the father of what we would think of as enlightenment philosophy, you could think, well, Descartes is a bad guy. But if you actually are one of these people who actually believes that um, truth is that which correlates with reality, guess what? That was a Descartes uh, deal as well, uh, the, the correspondence understanding of truth. Uh, as it corresponds to reality, is actually uh, Descartes as well. So um, you have to press back to, I think, what people originally said and what they meant. And so how you think about yourself and what you think about yourself actually does matter because it influences how you behave in the world. And so when I ask the question, who do you think you are, Um, I am seeking to provoke us to consider who we are because of who God thinks we are. And if you think of yourself differently than God thinks of you, then it's your thinking that needs to change. It's just that simple. Um, and so uh, so there you go. That's the who do you think you are uh, little uh, question of the day. Adam Carrington is going to be here next from Hillsdale College. He and I are going to talk about some research from Pew, which I, I think I highlighted at the very end of last week that a an ever-decreasing or declining percentage of Americans identify as Christian. So if you want to know why it seems as if things are upside down and inside out, it may well be that the Christian influence um, is waning in the culture. And you say to yourself, well, how could that possibly be? There's so many churches and so many ministries and so many people like you uh, talking every day from a Christian worldview. Yes, indeed, there are. But we are speaking to a decreasing percentage of the population that identifies as Christian. So we're going to talk with Adam Carrington about that, about what that, really what the ramifications are for us as a body politic in a country that was designed actually on the morality of the Christian faith. So that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. I once heard that we can control only 20% of our daily life. The other 80%? Well, it's totally out of our hands. Things like traffic, weather, other people's opinions. Hi, I'm Callie Breeze with Thrivent, helping you be wise and thrive. So here's the good news. You can give all your effort to the 20% you can control, like how you spend your money and time and how you use your talents. You have a choice. All these gifts from God can be used for selfish purposes or they can be used for good. For example, it's easy to get carried away with buying things you don't need. But if your decisions are informed by your faith, it will be much easier to figure out how much to spend, to save, and to give to others. In the end, you get to choose how you use everything God has provided. And with His help, you can make decisions that will help you live a content, confident, and generous life.
I just want to start by saying I love our listeners, and um, I I love you. In case you were wondering and you want to communicate with me what you're feeling or thinking this morning, you can always do it on the text line, 877-933-2484. It is wonderful to engage there. So please uh, please feel free to do that. Adam Carrington is back in the house from Hillsdale College. You can um, you can at him on Twitter, Carrington A.M., Carrington AM. That's where you can find Adam on Twitter. You can also find him at hillsdale.edu. Welcome back, sir. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me again. So I would like to start with um, this Pew Research that we all just uh, learned about at the very end of last week, this religious landscape of the United States. And what Pew is observing is that the percentage of American adults who self-identify as Christian it continues to decline, and we have now arrived at something like 65% of the adult American population self-identifying as Christian. I, I want to start um, by you helping us understand why that matters in terms of the body politic. Like, how, why does it matter that at this point only 65% and a, it's a declining percentage of the population, it's not headed in the right direction, um, why does that matter in terms of the way we function as a people? I, I'd say it, it operates on two levels. Uh, I think one way to think about our government is we have a what you could call a big C constitution and a small C constitution. The the big C is the document that we study and and that we uh, that starts with we the people. But there's underlying that um, a, a, a small C one, which I'd say is our habits, our morals, what we understand ourselves to be as human beings, what's required of us. And I think uh, in our government, especially the big C constitution depends on the small C one, that if we uh, begin our preamble, we the people, meaning we govern, then that assumes certain things about the small C constitution, about how we are able as individuals to govern ourselves, to see ourselves as moral beings. Um, I think of, uh, I, I used a, a proverb last time, um, Proverbs twenty five twenty eight says, a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. And I think the way that someone like John Adams or George Washington would articulate that is if you can't govern yourself, then if you try to govern a body politic, it's going to be chaos, it's going to be immoral, it's going to be destructive. And I think uh, – and what they've all connected that to is the idea that um, a religious foundation is crucial for most people to have that. Uh, so I think that's one of the big problems. I, I just add one other quick one is that I think in the end we are worshiping beings. We all want to have a God and have gods, whether we admit them or not. And if r Christianity is not going to be it, something else is filling the gap. And I think some of the intense hyperpartisanship and intense uh, loneliness and despair that we see in many people's lives, I think is attached to having more people with false gods than before, which is uh, uh, fed into some of the of, I think, some of the worst tendencies of our society and our politics. So I think this is massive on many scales. I think you can tell by uh, the way I'm trying to portray that. Well, I think to that second point that you made, Adam, glory is really heavy. It's weighty. And we are not designed to bear the weight of it. And so no. when when we become, right, when we become the object of our own 
uh, glorification and affection, we can't bear the weight of it. Marriages can't, other people can't bear the weight of it if we try to make them idols. Marriage can't bear the weight of it. It's not designed to, and we've tried to make an idol of that. Kids can't bear the weight of it if they're parents. I mean, on and on and on and on, right? And so when you talk about the way people now self-identify, if our, if our first identity is not in Christ, if we're not placing the glory and the weight of it where it is designed uh, to rightly belong, I mean, the, the, the structure at every level collapses, I think that's absolutely right. And I think that, uh, we, you know, the great lie or among the great lies in the Garden of Eden was you shall be like gods being a good thing. And I think that you're right. This weight of glory means that we not only demand too much of others and ourselves, we exercise the uh, righteous judgment of God unrighteously. And uh, in doing so, I think den- not only deny the humanity of others, but we we um, we try to bring heaven to earth, creating our sort of own utopia of of rights and wrongs that are often distant from God's rights and wrongs. And I think uh, instead of bringing heaven on earth, we we bring a taste of hell on earth. I, I think that's really what that ends up doing to our own souls and to our interactions with other people. It, it, it's amazing what a restraint being a citizen of heaven is to how you exercise your citizenship on earth, but how that makes you a better citizen on earth, recognizing that uh, ultimately you're a sojourner here and that ultimate justice, ultimate right, the ultimate ruler is is actually in heaven, not in the White House or or your congressman or even yourself uh, exercising, uh, um, you know, commenting on Facebook. I think that's a, that's a very good point. And one of the things that I feel like we observe is as as people reject an identity in Christ, as we as a few as a smaller and smaller percentage of the population identifies openly as Christian, therefore identifying with Christ, um, we begin identifying as other things. And so when we think about identity politics and we think of all the ways, all the lesser things that people identify as or with we then just devolve into this deeply partisan mess that we find ourselves in. Oh, absolutely. And I think you're you're, you're right to connect this to a kind of identity politics uh, where you find um, a meaning, you find who you are most fundamentally in your race, in your uh, sexual identity, uh, you find your uh, uh, meaning e- even, and I think this is a danger too. You even, uh, 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 even among some uh, self-identified Christians, uh, I-, I think there's a worry that to what degree do you take those identities and contort Christianity to be those things, as opposed to Christianity mm. being something that changes you, to what degree do you change it? And, you know, this is something that, uh, uh, you know, every generation of Christians struggle with, but I think we particularly do, is to not remake Christianity in our own image, but be renewed and restored to the correct image by Christianity itself. Adam, let's continue this conversation in just a moment, um, and let's apply it maybe specifically to what is happening at the U.S. Supreme Court. I know you have been paying attention to a particular set of cases 
that are around identity and around how we think about one another and employment. And so um, let's let's apply. Let's have this conversation about how we see ourselves and one another and how we treat ourselves and one another um, when we come right back. I'm talking with Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College. You can find him on Twitter at Carrington AM or at Hillsdale.edu. Continuing my conversation with Dr. Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College. Um, Adam, you have been, you know, you you love the Supreme Court. We all know that. You're a junkie in ways that the rest of us are not. So you've actually been listening to oral arguments in a particular case before the Supreme Court. Tell us, uh, it's actually a set of cases. Tell us what that is and what you're hearing. Right. Uh, at least as far as the background, there's cases related to Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And what that landmark legislation did was ban discrimination in employment, including hiring and firing people because of sex. That's what the, uh, the, the, what, what the statute says. You can't fire or hire people on the basis of sex. And these key cases are asking what if you fire someone based on their sexual orientation or their uh, status as a transgender person? Does that constitute discrimination on the basis of sex? And of course, um, there is a legal question here that was, I think, the focus of the actual oral arguments and probably will just be the, will be the focus of the decision when it comes down. Uh, we don't know when. And that is this question of sex stereotypes. Uh, what does it mean to stereotype someone on the basis of sex? And, you know, a lot of us will say, I think rightly, that there are ways that we can do that badly, uh, that we can say, you know, women should only be at home or be grade school teachers and secretaries, you know, something like that, which I think oversimplifies uh, uh, male-female distinctions. But what's being asked here is, is it an illegitimate sex stereotype to say women should only date and marry men or that your biological sex is what everyone should demand you act according to? And, you know, that's the legal stuff. But I, I think based on what we were saying last uh, segment, I think underneath and unaddressed is a fundamental question of what it means to be human and what we can expect of the of the idea of of God creating us male and female. And I think that's something that the court probably won't address, but has to assume in anything it decides and is very much based on what I think we were saying last segment. I mean, the, the, the conversation in question about the creator um, seems to me to be pressing itself forward today in ways that are hard, you know, are harder and harder to ignore. At some point, we have to deal with the question of whether or not we are self-made or, you know, ginned up by some uh, accident of time and matter and chemistry or chance or whether or not there really is a God and whether or not that God is the God uh, who, who I certainly profess him to be. Um, and so how do we have a conversation about humanity apart from having a conversation about a creator? It's hard to do so because it goes back to self-deifying uh, that you were talking about before and kind of the dangers of that. Because if we are, if our freedom is not the freedom to live according to how God defined us, 
and how what the purposes God created us for. If that's not freedom, then the freedom is self-creation, that we basically define our own meaning of existence. And that to, that's very attractive uh, to uh, sinners like we all are. But I think in the end, it's 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 something that then destroy can destroy us and damage us and damage us in relation to each other, and I think that uh, uh, that question of of who we are and how we know who we are and the question of whether uh, behind that is a God that has created a, a natural law that 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 binds us lovingly, that is a loving bindness, a binding of us for our good, uh, that's a question that really I think is unes- inescapable, even if in a court case like this I think they're going to try to escape it, but if you really dig down they're going to have to make assumptions about what that means for human beings. Okay, Adam, assuming that most of us are not uh, listening nor reading the transcripts of the Supreme Court oral arguments, I'm, I'm wondering what, you're, what you are hearing or what you are not hearing in terms of the conversations that the justices are having. They struggle in conversation with one another. I mean, this actually is a deliberative process of some, of some sort or variety. So take us into that. Like, help us understand... Um, what kind of struggle takes place among these justices when they're trying to discern something like this? Right. Uh, and, and I'll just I'll mention the process first. The simple process is after they heard these oral arguments where, where several attorneys got up and were questioned by the justices, made their case. Uh, they have a bunch of briefs that have been submitted to them. They go into chambers, uh, basically a room by themselves, nobody else, no clerks, no press, no, no litigants, and uh, they vote. And they discuss why they voted, want to vote the way they do on who should win this these cases. And then after that, they spend sometimes months and months, and I think this case is going to take months, um, verbally and in written form, writing and discussing with each other where whose whose side is the law on, until finally they uh, they, they they get a, a a vote of the majority and an opinion of the majority and dissenting and other opinions that basically will display to us the culmination of their thinking together. And and I think that, um, you know, a lot of it's going to be on what does the text say? But again, I think you can't get away from the idea that they are going to have an anthropology, an idea of what human beings are. And it's going to be very fascinating to see in our time and place what that assumption is as they try to refine and discuss with each other, because laws aren't mere articulations of will. Laws are supposed to be connected to reason and reason's founder, which is uh, God and his word. I am so grateful that um, that God gave you the mind that he gave you and uh, and the interest that he gave you so that you can Help us understand um, not just what's happening at the Supreme Court, but help us understand how we as Christians actually sort of navigate in the body politic that exists today in the United States of America. You you help us remember who we once were and who God has called us to be, and you help us uh, see the difference, you know, in terms of our own moment, um, because we are called to be the citizens who have the privilege of living right here and right now bringing that positive witness to bear in the conversations of our day. And so thanks for all the ways you help us do that, Adam. 
Well, that's very gracious of you. And I would just say we're, we're all learning together and we're all trying to serve God together. Amen. Amen. That's Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College. You can find him at hillsdale.edu. You can also find him on Twitter at Carrington AM. We'll be right back. Okay, so one of the conversations that I had last week was with Kathy Branzell. Kathy heads up the National Day of Prayer Task Force. And um, earlier in October, her family experienced just a a tremendous grief and tragedy. Um, Her cousin, Robin, is the mother of two children who died in a house fire. Uh, Robin, the sole survivor of that event. Kathy shared with us here on the program Um, how we have to prepare in prayer today for the kind of news we're going to receive tomorrow. Because some of the news we're going to receive tomorrow is going to be personally tragic. It is certainly going to be, uh, you know, tragic to whomever it is that receives it. And then we as Christians respond to that. And so how are you preparing in prayer today for the news you're going to hear tomorrow? If you go to MyFaithRadio.com to the Mornings with Carmen page, we uh, we actually typed up part of that conversation with Kathy Branzell, we line out the things that she talked about and the audio is available there as well. So you can check that out. In the next hour today, we're going to be making the connection between the gospel and Netflix Stranger Things. And you're saying to yourself, how in the world are you going to do that? Well, I'm going to have the help of Michael Heiser. So that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.